Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan and I apologize uh, for how I often present myself. It's just kind of part of who we are here. Uh, we're in the fourth Sunday of Advent. This is the fourth and final Sunday. And, um, you know, every year we like to have you know, a slightly different approach to the Advent uh, themes and narratives. So sometimes we're looking at it from the place of like hope, peace, joy, and love. Sometimes we're looking at it as kind of the supporting cast of the story. Like how are they gazing upon the Christ child, which is a little bit more how we're doing it uh, this year. And I love that there's been... Even as, as often as we look at a story as pivotal as the nativity story, um, we still enter into it each year, I think, with different eyes. And that's really what makes it sacred, is that each time we come back to the story of the birth of Jesus, there's something new there for us to discover. It contains this inexhaustible meaning. And so this year we looked at um, the prophets and how the prophets uh, begin the story in darkness that we need to begin the story in darkness if we're truly going to appreciate the light. And so it becomes about uh, preparing ourselves to receive hope through grief. Um, we looked at uh, Mary and Joseph. Uh, so Shav took us through that part of the story and looking at how joy um, is something that we kind of latch onto in the midst of all of the struggles and the birth pangs of what it is that God is doing uh, within us. Um, what was the other one we did? Angels. We looked at angels and how angels kind of prepare the way. There's this idea of preparation, like prepare a highway for our God, and that angels are the ambassadors between heaven and earth as God is stitching it all back together. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the shepherds in particular. And I really like sitting with the, the, the passages of scripture. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter two today. Um, and we looked at um, uh, Isaiah 40 during the reading and really allowing those things to sit there as these sacred texts and almost so to wash over us and to see what is it that the Lord highlights in those things in particular. So that's what we're going to be doing today is starting with the shepherds, but really kind of expanding the, the, the nativity story, the Christmas story, even beyond that. So let's pray and we'll get into what the Lord has for us today. So Heavenly Father, um, we testify that you are here with us. Um, that you turn curses into blessings. That even now, as we remember the first coming of Christ, we celebrate in this moment the continual coming of Christ, of arriving in our hearts. And we also look forward to his second coming. And Lord, in the midst of this season, I mean, it, it almost feels trite to just talk about how, how busy it is because I can't remember a season that's not busy, um, yet still you're here. And Lord, we believe that it is an act of resistance against empire to slow down, to breathe, to welcome in your presence and choose to prioritize time with you above all else. Because Lord, we believe that that is what gives us life. That is what this season is all about. Advent, preparation, arrival. So Lord, whatever we're bringing in with us this morning, however distracted we might be, 
pray that you would be near to us. Teach us how to open up, to open our eyes to see you move through our story, to open our hearts to receive your truth and love, to open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's my thesis for today. The Advent is about welcoming all precious people into the presence of the shepherd king. Advent is about welcoming all precious people into the presence of the shepherd king. As we're reading Isaiah 40, there were kind of two things that really stood out to me. The first is that line that says, all men are like grass. This is a common theme that you find in the Old Testament. It pops up a few times in the Psalms. All men are like grass. And a lot of times we can read something like that and say, oh, it means it's disposable. It doesn't really matter because usually um, in our bigger, better type of economy, we tend to think of things as when they're disposable, they're not really valuable and things that have longevity are. But I think what Isaiah is really telling us there is we have this one precious life. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. That's what it says in Psalm 105. It says, you know, our time here is so short and yet it's so precious to God. And that really stood out to me to put this, this narrative of like the, 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 the arrival of God into human history in the context of how fleeting our own lives are, which doesn't make us disposable to God, but it means that the precious time we have to him really genuinely matters. And the second thing that really stood out to me was towards the end of Isaiah 40. We'll throw that up on screen here again. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And so it's this, this announcement of what it's going to look like when God begins this rescue project for the world through his Messiah, through his king. Yet he's, it, it, always, it seems like it's one part like God is sending someone on his behalf, yet it also seems to be the embodiment of God himself being on that throne. But the way that God chooses to present God's self to us as a king is that of a shepherd king, kind of bringing those two symbols together from the ancient texts that we see um, this kind of kingly language from the very beginning that God sits on a throne. We see the lineage of David and so on. But we also see this shepherd symbolism walking alongside of it. And so here in Isaiah 40, we see those two things being brought together to give us a vision. This is the kind of king that God will be. And many of you will remember from the story of Israel that God actually admonished Israel not to take up a king like all the other nations. In the time of Moses, when they're still trying to figure out their identity, who they are, he's very clear in saying to Moses and then to Israel, do not take for yourself a king just like everybody else. But what happens several generations later when they become established, when they become a nation in their own right, they demand a king of Samuel, who is the prophet at the time, and God, out of his love for his people, allows them to get what they want. And is that not what we've talked about frequently? That's what God's wrath is. God's wrath is not that he you know, thrashes us with a lightning bolt when we misbehave. That's Zeus. God says, I love you so much that I'm going to let you get what you want in hopes that you recognize how short-sighted your vision is of, of who I've called you to be, and you turn around in repentance and you come back to me. 
And so God gives Israel kings, even though he knew that was not what was best for them. We have one good king, and then we have like 17 horrible kings. I think there was one like half decent one in there, like Jeconiah or something. Uh, Abishah, who knows? <laughs> who can keep track of these things? Um, but it, it goes wrong. It's just a really, really bad idea. But the, the image of the king sticks, and the hope of Yahweh through the Old Testament is, I hope you recognize eventually that I'm the only one that's really capable of sitting on the throne because there's a, there's a character quality that I bring to the role in your life that you don't easily understand. And so through that whole time, kind of from the dissolution of the kings, um, Israel, and then Judah fall in the exile, uh, they're, they're brought into Babylon for a time. They come back, they begin to rebuild, but they don't really know what it's going to look like. The kingship has been relatively destroyed. There's this period through the exile and after where they're wondering, what's it going to look like when God delivers us? We've got these, these visions of what God is like from our scripture. We have these prophets writing these strange poems that are painting these audacious, hopeful visions of us, of, of what it looks like when God's king, his Messiah, his anointed one, enters into history and rescues us and saves us. But what's it actually going to look like? And so at the time of the arrival of Jesus, a lot of people are on the edge of their seat waiting. They know this is about the time God has promised he was going to do something. And that's what brings us into the nativity story. What's it going to look like when God delivers us and reestablishes his true kingship? So we're going to be reading uh, the story of the birth of Jesus. You know, as we're not meeting next week, we're kind of smashing together uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas today. So this is um, from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read it in the New Testament for everyone, which is um, N.T. Wright's uh, translation of Scripture, because I really like how he phrases some things in here. So this is Luke 2, 1 through 20, and I would encourage you, as we often do, feel free to read it on screen by all means. If you want to close your eyes and just kind of allow the story to unfold before you visually uh, by all means, do so. At that time, a decree was issued by Augustus Caesar. A census was to be taken of the whole world. This was the first census, before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. You guys all remember that, right? Uh, it was a disaster. Wow. Real bad. So everyone set off to be registered, each to their own town. Joseph, too who belonged to the house and family of David, went from the city of Nazareth in the Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea, David's city, to be registered with his fiancee, Mary, who was pregnant. That's where they were when the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him up and put him to rest in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the normal living quarters. There were shepherds in that region out in the open, keeping a night watch around their flock. An angel of the Lord stood in front of them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Don't be afraid, the angel said to them. Look, I've got good news for you, news which will make everybody very happy. Today a Savior has been born for you, the Messiah, the Lord in David's town. You know that it's really important when there's a you in Savior. You see? That's like... That's important. That's a fancy savior, okay? Not like y'all Americans. You have like, you know, just a savior with an O. Huh? No, no, that's, that's, that's the formal version of savior. So it's like, if it's a casual savior, there's no you. 
but it's a formal savior, you add the U, like color. Like if it's a normal, boring, everyday color, it's just C-O-L-O-R. But if it's like a color, <laughs> I am your favorite pastor. So today a savior has been born for you, the Messiah, the Lord in David's town. This will be the sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly, with the angel, there was a crowd of the heavenly armies. They were praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and peace upon earth among those in his favor. <laughs> so when the angels had gone away again into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, well then, let's go to Bethlehem and see what it's all about. All this that the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they told him what had been said to them about this child. And all the people who heard it were amazed at the things the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and mused them over in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is a fascinating little story. There's so many things going on here that sometimes our normal ways of telling the nativity story will glaze over. Of course, we celebrate uh, the child in a manger. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, this the Away in the Manger, which is a, a wonderful uh, Christmas hymn, it has this line like, No crying he makes, as if we can't imagine. Um, that God incarnate has any actual feelings, you know, which is so permeated uh, our Western Christian mindset of God. Um, but it's easy to glaze over the much deeper political implications of what's actually happening here. And there's a reason that Luke starts his telling of the story in chapter two by mentioning uh, Caesar Augustus and then this person, Quirinius. So Augustus, if you remember your ancient Roman history, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was the very first Caesar. You know, up to that point, Rome had been a republic. Stop me if this sounds familiar. Everybody got voted in as senators. Everything was going well. Somebody came along and they said, no, 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 I'm gonna be the one in charge. Just give me the power and I'll fix everything. And they said, oh, okay, let's do that. And then Julius Caesar came along and it was this big tumultuous time. And then he adopted his son, Augustus, who rises to the throne and then there's this big old bloody battle. Again, stop me, this one sounds familiar. Uh, as the Republic is turning into an empire and Augustus defeats um, Mark Anthony, not the singer, um, and like kind of Pax Romana, like peace through strength, we establish the Roman Empire. And Augustus is now on the throne and there's this language that was floating around in the Roman Empire at the time that Augustus used to describe himself. He called himself the son of God. So he deified Julius Caesar. Caesar, you know, Julius Caesar, he's a God, so I'm the son of God. Um, he called himself the prince of peace, that I'm the one that brought peace. There was all of this conflict within the Republic, and I brought peace by establishing the empire, but it's peace through violence. Um, Augustus called himself the savior and the Lord, and all these early coins we have from the Roman Empire of the time, they actually stamped these types of words on the coins with the image of Augustus to celebrate his accomplishment of finally bringing peace to the known world. And in this time, we find that Augustus um, is creating a census. And it does mention that Quirinius is the governor of Syria, who would have been in a, you know, kind of... Um, 
you know, a subordinate later on of Caesar uh, also creates a census sometime later on in history. But census was really about control and dominance. So we have a census in our country every 10 years. And by and large, it's to establish um, what is our governmental apportion going to look like in state governments and federal governments and so on. Um, do we have enough resources? Do we have enough uh, fire stations and police stations and hospitals and whatnot? But in the ancient world, a census was almost exclusively for taxation. Um, it was about getting as much money out of the people as possible. And we've talked about that often, that especially in the region of Judea. So Syria was kind of the, the capital. It was like, that was, Syria was in charge of the Palestinian era. So uh, Quirinius would have been overseeing Palestine at the time. Um, the census, you know, the, the taxation rate would be well over 70% for a lot of uh, Judeans uh, in the time of Jesus. And so this census was really about control and dominance through taxation, through enforcing this Pax Romana, through demanding that they use coins that declare Augustus is the Prince of Peace, that he is the Son of God. Um, and it forces Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. So it's likely that Joseph probably... Uh, his family owns some property there. That's where you go for the census. So that's what brings them to the town of Bethlehem. But what we see here, and I think this is what Luke is really trying to say, if we don't understand the context, that this is the beginning of the confrontation between the empire of man um, and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This is, that is the setting stage for this story. And a lot of times, again, we have uh, neutered the nativity story to make it this clean little away in a manger, no crib for his bed, no crying he makes, so on and so forth. But there is an intense political um, like undertone to this whole narrative that Luke really wants us to latch onto. Because this is kind of what he's, he's setting us up to understand when we read the gospels, that empires coerce people by control and domination the kingdom of Jesus welcomes all in through a vision of a better world and a better God. So the empire of Julius Caesar, of Caesar Augustus, of Pax Romana, controls and dominates people in order to give order to the world. And we see this throughout history, throughout the history of empires, which Israel was very well acquainted with. First, um, we had the, you know, we had the, the Persian exile, we had the Babylonians, we had the Greeks, and then at the time of Jesus and his family, it was the Romans. But that continues throughout history. We see time and again, empires rise up, they promise peace, they try to bring peace through strength, whether it's through, um, you know, whether it's through uh, horses and armies, or whether it's through ICBMs and nuclear uh, bombs and you know, stealth bombers or whatever it might be, there's always some empire rising up out of the human narrative to say, no, we're going to be the ones that are going to fix it. Like if we come with a bigger stick, we could actually fix the world. And that's the insanity of human beings is that we continue to believe maybe this time it's going to work. Maybe this, this, is, the, this is the right leader or that's the right method of, of violence to eventually be able to bring peace to the world. but we do not see that in the kingdom of Jesus. We see it in counterfeit kingdoms of Jesus when empire uses the image of Jesus in order to accomplish its goals. 
where empire co-opts the image of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, um, where we believe that God is on our side and that God inherently just approves of whatever we do because we're a Christian nation. Stop me if this sounds familiar. Um, to, to exact violence upon the world in order to bring control and domination. But the true kingdom of Jesus never actually operates that way. It always is about welcoming that the spirit of God is not a spirit of coercion. That's the spirit of the Satan. It's always a spirit of welcoming, of alluring, of, of giving us this vision for a better world and a better God. Amen, brother. So we see in this story that it kind of centers on these shepherds. And who are these shepherds? Okay, there are various traditions that describe to us what the shepherds were like, what their role in ancient Palestine was. Um, but they were at the least social outcasts. Some traditions say that they were actually probably kind of thieves and robbers. Like this was like the lowest caste system in Jewish culture that they were forced to take care of the sheep. Um, but at the least, they're on the outside looking in. That's their role. They are, when they, they, they are out tending the flocks, they're out in the fields, it's because they're not welcome in normal, decent society. And perhaps the sheep they're taking care of are the sacrificial sheep that would have been sent on to the temple worship. Um, but they themselves would not be able to participate in that worship because they're determined to be ritualistically unclean, because they're dealing with the uncleanliness of animals. They're per, kind of in this perpetual uh, unclean spot. It's kind of similar to what we see nowadays in the caste system in India. There's a certain caste of people, of working class people, who are just perpetually unclean, and they can't, there's no upward mobilization for them in society. And so it's fascinating here that we see that it's the angel of God that now appears to these social outcasts, these supposed unclean people that are possibly kind of the, the low lives of society in order to declare that the new king has been born. And these shepherds, like everybody else in Israel, would know the word Messiah. They'd know these prophecies that have come to them through the prophets especially about how God is going to break into history. God is going to establish a new king, but this king is kind of also a shepherd, and this king is an ambassador of God, but also kind of seems to be God incarnate, they would have understood all those strange symbols coming together, um, and they would have recognized that what the angel is proclaiming to them is the moment. But I think what is most pr profound about these shepherds is that they would have probably picked up on the shepherd imagery that we find in the Old Testament. When we look at Isaiah 40, or we look at Ezekiel 34, when we look at the images of David as the very first king who was originally a shepherd and the way that he often wrote in the Psalms about it, they'd have said, ah, yes, when God comes to the world to establish his throne, he won't be a king like all of our kings of the past who look for peace through strength. He will be a king that comes in the image of a shepherd who comes to care for us, who looks for the least of these and welcomes them in, who tends to the flock, who knows each of them by name. And perhaps that's why the angel, possibly Gabriel, shows up to these shepherds to say, hey, go and find him because he's here. Because these are the guys they would have known. They would have known on a very deep level, oh yeah, Absolutely, when God comes to rescue the world, it looks like this infant child. So consider the strange group of people that we've already seen through Advent that are converging in this story. We have Zechariah, a disgruntled, crotchety old priest with whom I tremendously sympathize, 
who's going about doing his work in the temple day in, day out. He's being a good Jewish priest. And then when the angel came, comes to him and says, you, your, your barren wife is going to have a child too, he can't believe it. He's a good religious person, but he doesn't have that sense of awe that God can do something outside the ordinary. We have his elderly barren wife, who's perhaps given up on the promise of children, who has resigned herself to um, a life without children, which in their culture would have been a point of shame, unlike ours. We have this engaged couple, Mary and Joseph, where Mary becomes pregnant. They know the scandal that this is going to have, not only for the family, but the family within the community. That Joseph, I love, as a righteous man, looks to seek to divorce her quietly, when in reality, what he should have done is divorce her very, very loudly to kind of get any of her ick off of him. But because of when the, what the angel says to him, and he agrees to take her on as his wife, even though it's kind of scandalous in their culture for her to be pregnant before they're fully married. We have these shepherds, these social outcasts, as I said, who are on the outskirts of society that become uh, the ones who are to kind of give the litmus test to whether or not this is truly the Messiah. Uh, on January 1st and two Sundays, we'll look at the Magi or the, the wise men, these astrologers from the ancient Near East who saw the signs based on what they had received through Jewish scriptures to know, oh yes, here he is, these non-Jews, these, these kind of Gentile uh, pagans. What do we see later on in the story of Jesus? When he begins to gather his 12, we see young fishermen who didn't meet the grade to actually go into religious training. They weren't good enough. They weren't smart enough. They weren't talented enough. We see religious zealots who believe that, yes, the kingdom of God is coming, but it's going to come through violence. And when the Messiah arrives on the scene, he's just coming with a bigger stick to beat up the Romans and retake our nation. We see tax collectors, people who sold themselves out to work for the, for the Roman Empire, uh, betraying their own people. We see Samaritans, these kind of, uh, to use the parlance of Harry Potter, these half-breeds, you know, that they, they, the, the Jewish people despised Samaritans because they were close to us, but not, they're, not, they're doing it all wrong. We see Roman soldiers uh, coming to Jesus and kneeling down before him asking for a miracle. In short, it's all the wrong people. That's what's so fascinating to me about the, the Christmas story and the story of Jesus. It's all the wrong people. If you and I were writing the story of how God was gonna rescue the world, if we're imagining what this king who's going to take the throne and kind of bring peace to the world, none of these people would have made the story. You know? Everyone in our stories would probably have like a six pack and uh, what's that? Um, Manic Pixie, uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, like, just, she just has these innate abilities. You know, like, we'd, we write these characters that just fit our narratives of, like, this is what the ideal world looks like. None of these people would have been good enough to make it, and yet here they are. Because the kingdom of Jesus does not operate like the empire. But we're so inundated with empirical values and empirical understandings of power and strength that we miss the forest for the trees. We can't read the nativity story for all that it's worth. 
We, we, we tend to apply our value systems to the kingdom of Jesus and try to make them work, usually based out of our political or cultural or societal standards. And then we just look, we just sift through the kingdom of God looking for the things that meet what we've already determined is going to save the world. And that never works. It never works. I think the kingdom of God is just far too slippery to fit into any of our ideological understandings. Again, through our political view or our national view or a cultural view, whatever it might be, we keep trying to make it conform. We keep trying to make Jesus conform to our standards of how we think the world should be run um, and how we think the world could be saved. I think this is what's so profound here when we're, again, focusing on the shepherds. The kingdom of Jesus is radically inclusive in that all are welcome. Okay, everybody gets an opportunity to enter the kingdom of Jesus. Like it doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your societal standing. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter um, how much money is in your bank. It, none of these things matter. All of those dividing walls of hostility. When we try to save the world, that's what we do, right? We make, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Whoever they are, we make the line this is how we're going to, if we can just suppress the bad guys, elevate the good guys, then we fix the world. That's how we do it. And so there are certain people that are in, I've talked about this in general, that this, the, the kind of the natural problem that we're having now where we're, there's an attempt on, on a human level to be so inclusive that we're inclusive of everybody except for the people who aren't as inclusive as we are. So we're exclusive to the people that aren't as inclusive. And it becomes this cycle where it's like the, you know, the snake of Aruberos. It's just like eating its own tail. Like that's the problem that we have when we don't submit ourselves to the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the kingdom is radically inclusive in that all are welcome, but it's also radically exclusive in that we have to trust him as our shepherd king. There comes a cost to entering into the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of us don't like that either because we're so married to our political ideologies. We're so married uh, to our cultural tribes. We're so married to our bank account or our, um, our ethnic understanding or our national understanding. We're so married to those things um, that we don't recognize the radical call on us to open up and to trust Jesus as our shepherd king. So the radical inclusivity of the kingdom of Jesus is all are welcome. These shepherds, these outcasts, they, they're the stand-in for all of us to say, hey, you guys, you're the ones. You're the ones that can see it. You know what you're looking for. Go and find him. But it's radically exclusive in saying, will you trust in him? Will you give all of your allegiance to Jesus as your king and not the Caesar Augustuses of the world? That's the criteria to entering into the kingdom of God, our allegiance, that we recognize that we come as we are to Jesus, but something happens to us when we give our allegiance to him, we change, we transform. Part of the salvation narrative is that you are being rescued from all of those empirical understandings of who you are and how people are valued and how the world is going to be fixed. That's literally part of your salvation, is saving you from 
empire, saving you from the Caesar Augustuses of the world and, and day by day living more and more into this kingdom reality. But the challenge to you is to trust in Jesus as the king, to not be so overcome by um, cynicism, which I think as much as this season elicits joy in us, it also can elicit a lot of cynicism and, and this kind of uh, resistance to the invitation of the Advent season. Because on some deep level, we don't trust that Jesus is as good as he says he is, or that he's somehow he's going to let us down. But we have to trust that he's not like the rulers of these empires who control us by fear. Later on, Jesus uses uh, this imagery of the, of the sheep and the shepherd to speak of himself in John chapter 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Okay, so this, him, him kind of messing with our inclusivity, exclusivity language. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And then he flips the imagery on us again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. He's very specifically talking about our political leaders right there. If there's any ambiguity, because sometimes Jesus can be a little ambiguous, so we can put in there, the hired hand is not the shepherd. Uh, Joe Biden is not the shepherd. Donald Trump is not the shepherd. Boris Johnson, any, any BJ fans here? Not the shepherd, okay? And so on and so forth. Just insert your, your favorite despot. Um, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about the leaders of this world. Think about our modern Caesars Augustus, our political leaders, our tech bros, like all of these industries in our world that continue to try to inform us of who we are, that they literally in empire, do you know what empire does? Empire manufactures problems and then conveniently, they just happen to have the ones that have the solution. That's how the stock market works. That's how our entire economic vision in not just this country, but the entire world works is we manufacture problems and then, oh my goodness, it just so happens that someone has a very convenient solution. It's our political leaders, it's our economic leaders, it's our social media leaders, like all of these leaders in our world, they operate this way. And the question becomes, do you think any of them would lay down their life for you? I won't, I mean, I've already named some of them, but I won't name all of them. But do you think any political leader would actually lay down their life for you? Or do they wanna further their brand 
and continue to manufacture problems. Do you think any of the, the people who run these giant social media or internet conglomerates would lay down their life for you? Can you imagine any of them making a sacrifice in order to save you? No, they're hired hands, they're thieves, they're robbers. Yet they continue to present themselves to you as some sort of savior for our society, that they can save the human family, that they could save this planet. Do you think any of these, these economic powerhouses are actually interested in saving this, this planet? No. They're very good at using the right language and presenting commercials that when you listen to them don't actually make any sense. My goodness, some of the, some of the commercials I've seen during the World Cup don't make any sense when you listen to them. They're like, this is the place where innovation meets visioneering and that's sports. And you're like, what? No, what are you talking about? It's just messy. Again, difference between messy and the Messiah. Again, Daniel, don't you ruin it for me. If you're, I see you over there, don't ruin it for me. But would any of these people lay down their lives for us? No. So why do we continue to pledge our allegiance to them? Why do we continue to give them our attention, which is what we mean by worship, right? That's all worship is, it's attention. Why do we continue to believe in the problems that they manufacture so they can sell us cheap solutions? Why do we continue to believe their coins that say, son of God, prince of peace, savior, Lord? They don't protect us, they don't care about us. There's this amazing quote by Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the great empirical leaders. And he says, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we have founded empires, but what have we founded them upon? Force. Jesus Christ came to, to found a kingdom upon love, and at this moment, millions would die for him. So even the empire, game recognizes game. And they know that they're not going to be capable of saving the world. And so what is the invitation in this Advent season? Through the prophets, it is to prepare, to wait. Through the angels, it is to wake up. Through Mary and Joseph, it is to suffer long for the sake of joy. And through the shepherds, it is to have that moment of decision. Who are you going to trust? Perhaps the invitation in this Advent season is this. Come to the feeding trough, you precious ones, to gaze upon the shepherd king. Maybe that is the invitation for you now, to step out of empire, to stop believing in these leaders who are snake oil salesmen and women. Let's be, you know, um, let's be politically correct. Snake oil salesmen and women. But to come to that that feeding trough, that manger, and to gaze upon the Christ child as perhaps the only one who can actually save us because he is a king, yet he is also a shepherd. And so we're gonna pray uh, a prayer today that's known as the Great Litany, and I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. And this is an ancient prayer that probably goes back to the third century and 
It's a kind of call and response prayer that's been used in liturgical traditions uh, for a very long time that really sets the idea of praying for God's kingdom to come. And my hope is, as we pray this prayer, it becomes a building up of our allegiance to King Jesus, where we begin just like step by step almost to, to leave behind um, the, the shortcomings of empire, to leave behind our allegiances to Caesar, and to believe a little bit more than we did when we came in that Jesus Christ is the only one capable of saving the whole world, of saving the, the human uh, family, of saving this planet because he is both shepherd and king. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. And we'll pray this call and response prayer. You'll pray everything in italics. O God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. O God, the Son, redeemer of the world. O God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful. O holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, one God. Remember not, Lord Jesus, our offenses, nor the offenses of our forebears. Neither reward us according to our sins. Spare us, good Lord, spare your people, whom you have redeemed with your most precious blood, and by your mercy preserve us forever. From all evil and wickedness, from sin, from the works and assaults of the devil, from your wrath and everlasting condemnation, from all blindness of heart, from pride, vanity, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and from all lack of charity, from all disordered and sinful affections, and from all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, from all false doctrine, heresy, and schism, from hardness of heart and contempt of your word and commandments, from all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion, from violence, battle, and murder, and from dying suddenly and unprepared. By the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your holy nativity and submission to the law, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation, by your agony and bloody sweat, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial, by your glorious resurrection and ascension, by the sending of the Holy Spirit, by your heavenly intercession, and by your coming again in power and great glory, in all times of tribulation, in all times of prosperity, in the hour of death, and in the day of judgment. We sinners beseech you to hear us, O Lord God, that it may please you to rule and govern your holy church universal in the right way. To send forth laborers in your harvest, to prosper their work by your Holy Spirit, 
to make your saving health known unto all nations and to hasten the coming of your kingdom. To give all your people increase of grace, to hear your word with humility, to receive it with pure affection, and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. To bring into the way of truth all who have erred and are deceived. To give us a heart to love and fear you and diligently keep your commandments. To bless and keep all your people. That it may please you to rule the hearts of all in authority, that they may do justice and show mercy and walk humbly before you. To bless and protect all who serve their communities by their labor and learning. To give and preserve for us and for others the bountiful fruits of the earth, so that at the harvest we all may enjoy them. To make wars to cease in all the world, and to give all nations unity, peace, and concord. That it may please you to show mercy on all prisoners and captives, refugees, the homeless, and the hungry, and all those who are desolate and oppressed. To preserve all who are in danger by reason of their work and travel. To visit the lonely and those who grieve, to strengthen all who suffer in mind, body, or spirit, and to com comfort with your presence those who are failing and infirm. To support, help, and deliver all who are in danger, necessity, and tribulation. To have mercy upon all people. that it may please you to give us true repentance, to forgive us all our sin, negligence, and ignorance, and to endue us with the grace of your Holy Spirit, to amend our lives according to your holy word, to forgive our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, and to turn their hearts, to strengthen those who stand, to encourage the faint-hearted, to raise up those who fall, and finally to beat down Satan under our feet. To grant to all the faithful departed eternal life and peace. To grant that in the fellowship of all the saints we may attain to your heavenly kingdom. Son of God, we beseech you to hear us. O Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. O Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. O Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. O God, you have caused this holy night to shine with the brightness of the true light. Grant that we, who have known the mystery of that light on earth, may also enjoy him perfectly in heaven, where with you and the Holy Spirit he lives and reigns, one God in glory everlasting. 
Amen. Let us worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.